The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, bologna made from antimatter spontaneously transforms back into all the parts it was made from to power new gas emission star drive. Reservoirs of Updog and High Five threaten Midwest dams. Plus, we continue the complete audio book serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have an interesting talk with Jim Bell this time. Jim is a former nuclear plant inspector a Navy veteran, and generally a guy who knows his engineering well and writes well about it, often for Bain.com. We discussed his piece on the Bain.com website, Recycling from Stars to Starships, which pretty much says what it's about. Whether you hate or love recycling, this will give you some entertaining and enlightening insights into it. It's some cool stuff. Wait for that. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Here's the news. Hey, you have two more days to get in on the February Shot of Love ebook sale. Discounts on straight out of the Weird West ebooks. On all of Bain's Weird West themed ebook anthologies edited by the Root and Tootin' David Boop. For instance, $2 off the Bain ebook Straight Out of Dodge City, featuring stories by Mercedes Lackey, Harry Turtledove, Jonathan Mayberry, and more. And we have $1 off two more great Weird Western ebooks. We have Straight Out of Deadwood with stories by Charlene Harris, Mike Resnick, DJ Butler, and Stephen Graham Jones, and more. And also, Straight out of Tombstone, with stories by Jim Busher, Larry Correa, Alan Dean Foster, and more. These prices apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold, and the sale ends at the stroke of midnight, February 28th. This is the end of February. Let me give you a little heads up for March, with the March contest coming. Sail a darkling sea through the black tide to the end of the world. John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series has become a touchstone of post-apocalyptic zombie fiction, reinvigorating the genre with fresh twists and turns. Years since have seen two novels co-written by Ringo and Mike Massa, The Valley of Shadows and River of Night, and two anthologies of short fiction, Black Tide Rising and the upcoming summer book, We Shall Rise, so look for that, by the way, and a duo of novels by Charles E. Gannon, At the End of the World, and At the End of the Journey. We're celebrating the release of At the End of the Journey this month, and we'd love to hear your favorite scene or moment from the Black Tide Rising series. Let us know your favorite scene or moment in a short paragraph, 100 words or fewer, for a chance to win a copy of At the End of the Journey, signed by Charles E. Gannon. So that's coming up starting Monday. Want to welcome Jim Bell to the podcast. Hey, Jim. It's glad to be here. How can I help you? Well, let me talk to you about you a bit. Jim Bell has been a nuclear engineer for over 40 years, a war gamer for over 50, and an avid reader of science fiction for even longer. 
His experience in nuclear engineering and power systems began as a naval officer. Experience after the USN includes design, construction, inspection, enforcement, and assessment with a nuclear utility, an architect engineering firm, and the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, so you were, uh, for many years, you inspected nuclear power plants, basically, right? And made true. sure that they didn't blow up or whatever. <laughs> I inspected them when they were being built, when they were being torn down, when they were operating, after they had had events, all kinds of times. Well, um, today we were uh, out now on uh, on Bain.com. We have this great nonfiction article. Jim Jim has done a lot of nonfiction for us, as he is uh, knowledgeable and and inquisitive over many things. But this one is called "Recycling from Stars to Stars," recycling from stars to starships by um, Jim Bell. Um, so this is sort of a top-down uh, article. You start with stars and get to us. Um, let's kind of go through it because you know, there's a lot of fascinating details about things. Get, and a lot of people don't realize um, the extent of recycling. The universe itself does. Um, we live in a system with a population one star. What does that mean? And, and what, is, what are the other populations of stars? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting in its own right. Uh, a population one star has elements within it by spectrography, spectro, spectrograph analyses, have elements that can only be there because they've been in at least two previous stars. That's a population one star. Population two stars, which we can apparently see some in, in the, the past, have elements in it which had to have been in at least one other star. But no one has been able to find a population three star, which has only been theorized, but probably had to have occurred, which was the first stars after the original formation of the universe, when only hydrogen and some helium was out in space to be gathered by gravity into stars, along with some trace amounts of lithium and beryllium. So our star then has already been through two other stars, and it could be more. So it, it's at least a third generation, Correct. in other words. So it's been, it contains material within it that has been recycled from at least two previous generations of stars. And as each generation bakes uh, the previous generation's material, it makes more complex elements. Correct. And then when a stellar event concludes with the star, nova, supernova, neutron star, it ejects a great deal of these heavier elements far into space where they will get gathered again by still next generation of stars. And you mentioned in the article, some science fiction writers who have made use of this um, interesting uh, fact. Um, talk about some, a couple of those. What about that Larry Niven uh, um, story, Flatlander? Well, the, the thing about uh, Larry Niven is he's one of the premier science fiction writers who's been able to figure out in the modern day where science can be used in stories. So he has a kind of being called the outsiders, which are helium two beings. And when he wrote that story uh, back in uh, 1967, he didn't really develop them a whole lot, but it was clear that they were so ancient a race that perhaps they could date back to the previous generations of stars. <clears throat> 
Larry Niven does a great deal of, of, of uh, adventures into the frontiers of science and what their implications can be. So it's no surprise I quote him a lot of times in my articles. The um, I can think of a story that uses that, which is Greg Bear's uh, novella called Hard Fought from, uh, from the 80s, which is really cool because it is, um, he postulates that um, humans, us population one species, are um, inimically opposed or will be inimically opposed by these, these old gaseous beings that are basically made of hydrogen and, and stuff from uh, population uh, three systems. Um, and that there will be eternal war between us in, in his story, Hard Fought. That's pretty cool. It's a great, great, great little novella. So um, what else about the universe before we get to, to, to the Earth? So we have the, the stars recycling. Um, what else did you cover in the article? Uh, novas and supernovas. Those, those are what produce these things. Correct. And new uh, formation of neutron stars as well. There's new, I could just call them stellar events because that's what the astrophysicists call them. So as, as you are alluding to, great many science fiction stories use the, the methods and potential methods and hand wavium methods of inducing some of these events and that they are either weapons or ways to be able to uh, uh, manipulate the universe in their own way. You figure... Um, we have got one in the Heechee stories by Pohl. He has a race that's trying to manipulate the entire universe and bring it back to a big bang. So it will reform in a way that's more friendly to their species. So we've got a great many science fiction writers who explored it. That's a, that's a large thought. So, uh, and you mentioned a Weber <laughs> in the article, um, David Weber's story, uh, novel, um, where he makes use of some of these. Correct. He uses a, a combination, I believe, of drives to induce stellar events. And the, I think it's the Armageddon Inheritance is the name of that book. But, you know, before we branch out into, into other things within my article, can I say one more thing about generally about articles that I write and recycling? And that is that when I go to write an article, I take advantage of the fact that science fiction has explored a great many issues because it's a safe way to explore them. And recycling is, is no exception, whether it be gender issues. I mean, you can have multiple genders. You figure in Larry Niven and Pornell's book, Moat in God's Eyes, the Moti species, they change genders regularly. Same thing with, with uh, racism. You can be safe in exploring racism by having people be green. Remember the Star Trek episode where, where one half of the, of, of the species was white and the other half was black, and the other one was white where it was black and black where it was white, and they hated each other. So you could safely explore those issues. Sure, I completely life. identified with the left-handed black guys too. I just, uh, I just hated those right-handed. See, um, see, see. I wanted to kill them too. I understood. Well, you figure Gulliver's Travels does the same thing with religion. He has the two character, two uh, uh, nations against each other because they opened the egg at the opposite end from each other when they eat it in the morning, which was, a, I believe, a reference to the uh, Church of England and uh, Catholicism. So he could do that safely in Gulliver's Travels, and everybody knew what he was talking about, but nobody called him on it. 
So science fiction writers have explored recycling. And so I, I love to make use of things where the science fiction writers have explored the very topic that I'm trying to write about. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, and that's, we love to have, I mean, we always want the science fiction in the articles, in the science articles at, at Bain.com. We always try to, to have that, that wonderful cross of how it, how it all relates as well. So, um, and you give us what we want. So we published a bunch of Bell articles. <laughs> so, um, well, let's talk about it. the earth has, has recycled, the earth recycles, it recycles its crust. Um, not everyone always believed that. That is very correct. Uh, in fact, uh, as I quote in the article in one of the footnotes, uh, Richard Attenborough recounted what in the 1940s when he was at, a, I think it was Oxford, he asked one of his lecturers why he didn't discuss continental drift, which was what it was called then. And the guy said, it's moonshine unless you can come up with a force that can move entire continents. The whole thing is moonshine. So it was just, it was considered to be fiction and fantasy. And not until they were able to detect the ridge spreading in the middle of the oceans that they, that they decided it really was there. And it became one of the most quickly accepted reversals in science that has ever been documented. Everyone now believes in, in continental drift, which they then call plate tectonics. And yeah, they, only yeah. were able to, they were able to prove also, and I bring this out in the article, that the Earth has always, pretty much always throughout its history, has done that because they're able to do radio, uh, radioactive uh, element ratios and dating of, of various isotopes, uh, germanium and silicon, I believe, we're able to see that it's so homogeneous spread around that the only, only way you could get that kind of homogeneity was if the earth had been doing the very same process for billions of years. And you note that in human history, I mean, it's not, people have noticed for a long time that, you know, Africa sort of fits into the, the shape of, of what North America. Purely a coincidence, purely uh, a coincidence. Yeah. And it's not been, uh, it's not been, it, it didn't come out of nowhere, this idea. People had speculated about it before. And they had some data that was suggest suggested that is some of the um, paleontology, some of the geologies was very similar at those edges, but it was, it was dismissed. You know, I believe it was Richard Feynman that said that science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. Hmm. Otherwise, why would you need to do any more advancement? Because the experts always have the answer. But the experts can be wrong. Hence, we have science. They can. Um, <laughs> and, I, and there is no more proof of it than, than recently. There's a lot of experts have, that have been wrong a lot. So... Um, uh, what about uh, science fiction that has, has used plate tectonics, which I think um, I <laughs> immediately think of another Greg Bear's <laughs> book where he blew up the world. We have um, our own authors. You bring up Larry Niven's uh, protector and you bring up Larry Niven again. <laughs> surprise, surprise. I foreshadowed that, didn't I? Yeah, he has the, the, uh, the protector race after the, uh, all the breeders have left the planet in search of a safer home induce plate tectonic events so they could get at the core metals better to be able to make their next fleet of ships. That's pretty extreme. That's hardcore recycling. That's some major ge uh, geoengineering. <laughs> of course, that still doesn't, that still doesn't match up what Larry Niven did in Ringworld, though. Well, yeah. <laughs> he recycles an entire solar system to be able to build the structure of Ringworld. Yeah. 
these mega structures. Um, and uh, you also brought up David Brand's um, Uplift mm. series with um, the idea that uh, what that they induced plate tectonics to create um, to create uh, conditions for animal races to <clears throat> achieve sentience. Correct. Well, the, the stories that Bryn has written does not cover it, that I can recall, really explicitly what's going on here. But basically, when a species reaches semi-sentience, they are uplifted by a race that is already uh, intelligent to intelligence on their own. But it is the duty of these races after a time to leave their world and go out into space and for the world to be left behind, to be fallow, like a fallow field, so it can perhaps hatch another race that itself in a few hundred millions of years can be uplifted into sentience. And the humans are the, one of the anomalies. We're considered a wolfling race because we don't seem to have anyone that's uplifted us. So that we're, we're viewed as with suspicion by them. But the whole I concept is that these species, these races that are out in space have been around for so long, hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, that race, that plants have had a chance to go fallow and produce new races. We have a lot of, um, uh, speaking of recycling in a larger scale, uh, a bunch of science fiction writers mm -hmm. make use of the idea that they're, that an alien engineer created a system of wormholes to uh, circumvent the problem of the speed of light to get between uh, systems and that we rediscover this and, and learn how to use it. Um, but we're not sure, you know, it's, it's beyond our ability to make or not make um, like Weber's. Um, I mean, that's the way the universe works. Although we don't know where those wormholes come from, but uh, one assumes perhaps an alien race constructed them. And, and of course you've got Stargate. Yeah. They get an old piece of machinery or something that uh, that they think is uh, what was used by an ancient race, but turns out they're still around. Something like that. Um, <laughs> I saw the series like tw twice ever. <laughs> That's what I gleaned from it. That's close enough. Yeah. Um, so let's turn to humans, um, which I, you have some fascinating stuff in here that, that I really enjoyed reading about, um, especially about the way the, the pyramids looked when they were originally constructed, which I don't think a lot of people know or realize, um, and why they don't still have that aspect to them. Well, as, as I say in the article, they were smoothly surfaced with highly engineered white limestone, polished, hand polished. And there's, a, there's an article in one of the footnotes that a link to a video that uh, shows a 3D um, video of what it might've looked like at the time. And also how a current day master stones crafter would, how they would go about polishing another casing stone they're called and how many hours were involved. And it's just incredible. They figure 
millions of man hours went into just putting the, the facing stones on it. And as you alluded to, uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza had its white limestone surface intact until 1303, when the great earthquake in the Mediterranean centered around Crete uh, cracked it and shattered it and made some of them loose and opened it up, uh, the precision fittings, so they could get pry bars in and pry out these casing stones. And within uh, 50 years, most of the casing stones have been turned into buildings around Cairo. So it's, it wasn't just that the pyramids were painted white with, uh, you know, with whitewash. They were, there was a layer of stones upon them. They were, they were carefully made into smooth surfaces, right? They were like, right. they were like dice. In fact, there's a, a trace of, there's a trace of it left on one of the pyramids on the big, on near the top. I suspect it got kind of dangerous when you got up near the top because if you freed one, it would be, you'd have a landslide right down the face of the, of the pyramid. So I don't know exactly why they didn't use all of it, but about 90% of the, or more of the surface area is gone. And this survived from when, I mean, when the Great Pyramid was built like 2,500 BC, or it's like 5,000 years old or something. Yes, until 1303. And so AD. that was quite a, a long run for these things. The pyramids also had a, a peak stone of some sort. Uh, some authorities believe it would have been gold or gold plated. Others believed it was just inscribed in a different color with all kinds of markings and things. And they've just completely disappeared. It so would have been hard to get up there if these things were as smooth as, as you're talking about. Well, they could have always put the last smooth part down at the end, you know, and they could have put the capping stone up and then worked down like painting yourself out of a room. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, to steal it if you later. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. Yeah, no one, I guess maybe. Uh, so the point of the, the point of this was that once it cracked, people were like, wow, this is good stuff. Let's go build houses with it. Right. And that's what they did. Within 50 years, all that, all those casing stones have been converted into bricks and things like that and being used in buildings. So it's, I mean, and it's interesting, the, the sorts of things that get recycled depend on how much reworking they might require. Exactly correct. And so the, the, uh, one of the downsides of recycling that I lay out of the article is many of the great structures of antiquity that we would love to have around now, the Colossus of Rhodes, the, the, uh, so many of the great buildings of Greece and, and other uh, Mesopotamia, the gardens of Babylon, they are all gone because the materials were valuable and recycled into other other things. So fact, a lot of the things that that are there are there because they were difficult to recycle. Correct. They were either huge blocks of stone like the pyramids, and enormous many enormous numbers of tons in those blocks each, and or they were in remote places, or we just forgot about them for one reason or another. The site was abandoned, or the locals could not use it because the stone was there, but they were so busy building out of, out of wood that they didn't have time to mess with the stone. But the reason why stone was, was considerably recycled is it was so much easier to, to dig up a stone, even if you had to dig a hole around it to get it up, than it was to quarry new stone. Because the new stone, hard stone that, sort of that comes out of a quarry is enormous the number of man hours using hand tools to get out. Just an incredible number of hours. 
I love the picture. One of the illustrations you use is of a, uh, of a stone covered in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs that somebody used as a boat anchor for a yes. long time. Yes. Yeah. In fact, as I point out in the article, uh, trapezoidal stone objects were typically a common anchor design of the time. But the idea to use this immensely engineered and highly polished piece of white limestone as an anchor, it just seems so, so strange, but you know, well, if it's just going to get thrown away, I would make it into an anchor just because I could say, look, I have an ancient Egyptian anchor. <laughs> it, it, what's really hysterical about the, about the image that's in the article is you see that the curator who's holding the stone in the, the picture on the article is using careful white linen gloves so as not to mark or stain or put oils on, from his fingers on the stone. Yet this stone was just ripped off the side of a, of a temple someplace in Egypt carved into the shape it wants, a hole was drilled through it for the rope, and it was thrown overboard into the sea bottom. Repeatedly. Eventually, we're eventually in sad for a thousand years or something like that, before it was found, 3,000 years maybe. So anybody's handling with white gloves now. Yeah, well, they're, uh, they're I, we'll, we'll actually, I'll cut to it. Uh, I'll put it in the, uh, if I can, I'll, uh, I'll cut it into this when we post. Um, so people can see that. So uh, talk about Roman concrete, which I found also fascinating. The, I mean, I knew Romans could make concrete, but I hadn't realized that the reason the Colosseum's sitting there is because of its unrecyclable nature or or low low value recycling nature. Correct. In fact, uh, uh, that is why many of the Roman buildings have been preserved. It was because in antiquity, when, those, when the empire fell and new uh, civilizations arose around it, they reused the stone a lot of times, but when they, with concrete, they could get rubble or they could leave the building there. So that was, the Pantheon is made out of, a lot of it is made out of concrete as well, but it survived not just because it's made out of concrete, but because it's been in continuous use since it was built around in the first century AD. That's another way that buildings can may be, not be recycled, it's just keep using them. But concrete, as I say in the article, the Romans weren't the first to discover concrete, but they were the first ones to make incredibly large use of it. But any civilization that, in, that increases in size and prosperity, any nation will have an almost insatiable uh, need for building materials. And it's very hard to quarry rock with hand tools. So with the technology today, uh, you either have to build with wood and you're limited to how tall you can build and how long each building lasts and, and all the problems associated with fire and everything with wood, or you build with stone or as the Romans did, build with concrete. And concrete in Rome, they just built everything out of concrete. And they used the volcanic ash of Pompeii and Vesuvius as the main source of their volcanic ash that they mixed into their, to make their concoction, along with making what was then considered to be a very high temperature kiln of 1700 degrees to be able to make the mix. That is the, those ratios and the sources and the heat were the secrets of Roman concrete. But Roman concrete then allowed them, their buildings to survive and allowed them to use stone in other places where, they, where concrete might not be the right uh, material. And it was, it was not particularly, um, 
valuable as a recycling material because you couldn't, uh, I mean, you couldn't like take big blocks of it in the same way you could re- to repurpose. Correct. It, it, becomes to tear it, up to it becomes rubble. A lot of the energy associated with the bonds in concrete comes from the high temperature that was used to make it, kind of like storing the energy so that you, that's how you can form it into shapes. But in rock, of course, it's just the material itself. I wouldn't want to try to recycle concrete even today. Yeah, I, would, yeah. I, would, I would not be confident it would maintain its structural strength with what I had to do to be able to make it a block. So it's just better to just tear down and use it as, as roadbed or whatever. Uh, but, so, but it was not even worth doing that for a long time. Um, you know, the Romans had other, and so that very fact is, is probably why the Colosseum's there. Yes. Um, and many of their other buildings too. It was, that's a cool thing to note. And the, um, the fly, so we, we, the ash that they use came from volcanoes. Um, and nowadays we use what, uh, you said coal, ash and, Correct, from coal plants. They found that they can use it using a similar process. And We have a problem, right? Well, we are making fewer coal plants, if any, and we're using fewer coal plants. We're basically reducing the amount of coal to the point where I don't believe the output of the remaining coal plants in the United States is sufficient for the the appetite for concrete. So they're, they're having to figure out ways around this. There may be more deposits, shall we say, of coal ash they could harvest. But uh, I, I just found it interesting in the article that the shift to a more environmentally benign power sources is, in fact, going to potentially impact an environmentally friendly way to build buildings, which is concrete. And one other thing you note in the article that I found really cool was that um, it didn't have to be that the Middle Ages lost the... Uh, the techniques for making concrete because they still existed in manuscript form. Um, as in fact, when it was rediscovered, it was rediscovered by someone translating a Latin text made, written by a man who died in 15 AD, but it had been lost for 1400 years. Nobody had bothered to retranslate it or do anything with it. But there were at least 78 copies out there of this document that survived all this time, all that time. You can still find them. When in libraries. In fact, someone has written a book in, in a foreign language which has 78 in the title, and it's referring to the 78 copies of this document. So the Middle Ages, they, they took so long to build all their cathedrals because they were using stone. It took them two, three, four hundred years to build a cathedral, whereas the Romans built the Pantheon in under 10 years. And the um, and you suggest that um, a cool alternate history might be if uh, the use of concrete were just never lost or else rediscovered quickly, which it could have been. All you, if you want a point of divergence, all you got to do is have somebody translate that document to somebody you want as an author to translate that document or have it come to them at any point between the fall of Rome in 300 something A.D., and 1400 something when it was rediscovered and reused again. Anytime in there by anybody you want, anywhere in Europe, you can, you can reinvent concrete and you can have your alternate civilization right there. 
Yeah. And they might have like, uh, you know, even come up with reinforced concrete and maybe the cathedrals uh, could have been uh, 10 miles high or something. Like that. Well, they're building one that's pretty high in Barcelona, Spain right now. Yes, they are. That's right. That Gaudi one. Um, what's it called? Uh, Sagrada Familia. The Holy Family. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and you turn to um, today and and start talking about some of the recycling. One of the interesting things is the um, changing nature of the value of aluminum you bring up, um, which is kind of cool considering um, it was it was so precious that they put it on top of the Washington Monument. In exactly. The, in 1884, it was the only untarnishable ghostly light material that was that they figured to be a suitable topping to the to the monument and uh it's still there of course the inscriptions are still there they checked on it uh in the 1930s it was still there and everything was still good on it and they could still read the writing on it but in 1884 the nine inch tall pyramidal top that weighed 100 ounces was the largest single piece of aluminum on the planet which is pretty cool it was so it was so rare that Tiffany's exhibited it and put it on their floor of their uh, great store in Manhattan and put velvet ropes around it and let everybody jump over it so they could say they were jumping over the highest building in the world because the Washington Monument, when it was finished, was the tallest building in the world. So it, it, it was a great, they had people lining up to go through these velvet ropes to be able to step across the top of the Washington Monument. And uh, they reenacted it, by the way, a hundred years later. That's that's cool, but the um, but now aluminum is not quite so hard to make, and it is it's very recyclable. Correct. Um, why is it so? Because why is it so recyclable? And um, I mean, it it has to do with the company. You know, I guess concrete has something to do with it, since we can make dams hydroelectric dams out of. Uh... That's also true. That's, I had even considered that interrelationship. Very good. Yes. Uh, and what you're alluding to is that mainly electricity is the, is what you need. Uh, you need a great deal of electricity, bulk electricity. And that goes back to the, the guy that invented that particular method. Martin, I think is his name. And uh, he invented a way to make electric, make, Aluminum, not by a chemical process, which is what had been used before, such that aluminum was so rare and expensive that it was used as jewelry. He was able to make it in bulk uh, because he had a lot of electric power to, to work with. When Westinghouse and Tesla finished the Niagara Falls Dam, uh, the Pittsburgh Reduction Company, which was how uh, Alcoa and aluminum all started, that's their previous first name was the Pittsburgh Reduction Company. And they were able to make a lot of aluminum and the price of aluminum fell dramatically because of that process. But you need a lot of electricity. You pretty much needed the grid and this process hooked together to get bulk aluminum. And of course, as I noted in one of my notes in one of my previous articles, having bulk aluminum was how the Wright brothers were able to make it their airplane to fly because they didn't have to use steel. They could use aluminum for their engine. And it's, it's essentially easier to get aluminum from recycling than from mining the ore. Uh, Correct. Which is quite bogside. 8% of the energy. 
So you have a 92% of the energy you don't have to expend to refine the bauxite. So a lot of recycling depends on advances of knowing how to, um, how to remake it. Steel is another example you give. Yes, the, the pe people associated with the steel industry are always saying, and I, I check the math, they're right, it is the most recycled material on the planet, such that uh, uh, I think I use the numbers, um, I think it's like 75%, no, 75% of all the aluminum that's ever been made by man is still in use by man today due to recycling. But according to the steel part, uh, if 86% of steel that's used, it gets recycled. But we've used a lot more steel and mass than we probably use in aluminum. So there's probably, depending on which number you want to do, percentages versus mass, either aluminum people or steel people can claim a throne of sorts. But you, one of the interesting stats you have is that, um, what is it, that still two-thirds of the steel that is used is recycled. Correct. And so only a third is new steel. Yes, but that's still a lot of steel, a lot of coal and a lot of things has to be has to be mined and ripped out of the earth and be, and be made into new steel because as a growing civilization of a planet size planetary size our appetite for steel is enormous but i mean it's still kind of amazing that um it's only a third that gets added each year or whatever um i, I would not probably, have thought probably credit concrete for some of that what's that you probably can credit concrete for some of that because most of the mass of a building that's reinforced concrete is not the rebar that's inside the concrete, is the concrete. Yeah. Well, the um, the next thing you, you move to um, after, so metals um, clearly are things we can recycle fairly easily in comparison to, to other things um, these days. And we do it a lot. Um, you don't have to have government mandates to recycle steel. You can take it to the scrapyard and they'll pay you for it, right? It's it's a very different sort of thing. But the one of the things we have trouble with because we have so much of and we got to do something with them is tires. And you you talk about that. I do, and I believe in at one point there was one billion tires lying around in yards and piles in the United States, and another billion around the rest of the planet. So we at one point we had 2 billion tires uh, because it was, it was cheaper to make a new tire than it was to recycle an old tire. And recycling a tire is, is very difficult. It is in some ways a little bit like concrete, which is, uh, if it exists as a tire, if it can be used as a tire, it is a valuable object. But once you try to recycle it, you are left with basically debris and how do you use it? And how do you make it debris? One of the problems with making a durable product that lasts a long time, like a concrete building or all season steel belted radial tire, is that once you still can't use it anymore, it does wear out eventually. It, it's very durability, it's very strength, makes it harder to recycle. Tires is a tremendous example of that. That is why we had tire piles so big that they're visible from space. So we yeah. had to figure out how to do how to deal with it. And as you say, uh, they didn't need a government mandate, which is kind of what has happened with tires, which is what you were hinting at. Uh, environmentalists quite rightly 
point at the problems. It doesn't take much of a uh, person intelligence to see when a, a large pile of tires, which is essentially oil, starts burning and it can't be put out for weeks and months and it's throwing this enormously hazardous waste products up into the atmosphere and burns and burns and burns that you don't want enormous piles of tires around where you are. So it became uh, very uh, clear that there should be a mandate to do it. And they changed some of the rules and some of the legislation and some of the incentives and pretty much that has worked. Uh, we have in fact worked down our tire inventories to a small fraction of what they were. But because we use so many tires every year, there's a lot, still a lot of tires out there. I give some of the numbers in the article, there are millions and millions and millions. Yeah. It's, it's For a while the industrial countries would ship their tires off to someplace else. So there are some third world countries that have enormous piles of tires because they made money by accepting it. And now they're having to deal with them as well. Well, do you think, um, Considering that uh, the concrete structures are what le are left from Rome, maybe the last, you know, the gravestones of our culture will be giant piles of tires, which is the one thing that wouldn't recycle. <laughs> not, imp not impossible, especially if we come up with new ways to make tires that are even more durable, that are even harder to recycle. Yeah. Yeah. Those nano tires are going to be hard to break down. So I, you know, I, I wouldn't really mind if that was our gravestone. Uh, I if everyone thought we worshiped the gods of Goodyear and Michelin and the circle <laughs> is a sacred like, shape, right? The donut is a sacred shape. That's why they made so many of them. That's we right. worship toroids. <laughs> that's right. So um, another thing you mentioned is gold, which is um, would seem to be highly recyclable, but you, you, you say why it is difficult, um, which yeah. is basically what, that it's, it's spread out because it's so valuable. It, it's spread as thin as possible. Correct. If you look at a great many of the Egyptian artifacts that are gold, uh, they're only coated with gold that has been pounded into, into thinness that is just amazing that ancient technology could pound them so thin. Uh, one of the museums has got objects that has a coating of them of one micron. Now remember, they did not have electrolysis, we don't believe. So there, this is mechanical process using the extreme flexibility and thinness of being able to pound the gold into such thin layers that and many of the objects are not gold, they're just gold coated and very little gold there. So uh, only certain very special objects like the um, the things that the, the, the coffins of the pharaohs and some of the objects that the pharaohs used were solid gold. Most so to get the were. gold out of these, I mean, you'd have to break the thing up and try to process it. And you just would have the, the dilution and difficulties of getting it correct out of the rubble of what you've. That's exactly correct. And in fact, uh, it still doesn't, they still do it, by the way, in antiquity, they would still tear apart things and rip off these thin layers and try to get gold out of it. But you figure uh, we still have that problem today, as I state later in the article, we use gold in our electronics. But we use it in such tiny amounts and small places that it's very difficult to recover the gold from, from our, our personal electronics. Yeah, that's a, and that <laughs> is um, a, a, a <clears throat> Another part of your article, which I, I, you know, which all of us are, how the heck are we going to, we have these 
enormous. Everybody's got a cell phone and all of them break eventually. How, how, what are we going to do with these things other than just throw them away? Is there any possible, you know, and you, and you go into some of the problems of what you can do about it. Are we going to have a, a cell phone mountain? <laughs> we do, we have them already. Yeah. You can go on the web and find uh, photographs and pictures of enormous mounds of old computers and cell phones and displays and, and things like that. The short life cycle of personal electronics has pretty much created these enormous piles. In fact, as I indicated in the article, it's been given its own name. Uh, it's called uh, WEEE, which is, uh, I'm trying to say, Waste Electrical and Electronic Equipment is what it is. So it's got its own acronym now. It's gotten so big. And yet it's very difficult to recover the value, even though the materials in there, including rare earths and all kinds of materials, are present in concentrations much higher than the native ores from which those very elements were originally mined. But if they're almost unrecoverable because of all the complex processes you've got to do to be able to get at it. Basically, you want to use as little gold as possible, so you find ways to stick it on there in such small films that it's spread all throughout the entire uh, device. So you basically yeah. have to like hand process the things, and that would just be so enormously expensive. You, got two you have two choices. You can put enormous numbers of man hours into separating these things mechanically person by with a person, or you have to pay enormous amounts of money into the complex uh, pyro and metallurgical processes that have involved high temperatures and generate enormous amounts of waste to be able to get it out in a bulk fashion. So you, you either you pay me now or you pay me later and neither one pays enough. All right. Well, and that is the, the present. And then you take your, your article into the future and we start talking about world ships. Talk about the, I mean, that is going to just, basically you're going to have to engineer for recycling, right? Correct. And, and that, that is my assertion anyway. Any kind of, of a space mission, you launch with a closed system, a certain finite amount of resources and capabilities you take with you. You can't go mine more gold. You can't go mine more coal. You can't go mine more of this or that. What you took with you is what you've got. So you are going to have to think in terms of recycling everything. And if you can't recycle it, you've got to figure out what do you do if it breaks? Can you repair it? <clears throat> in some cases, you may have to uh, put in an installed spare or two because you can't make it again. You don't have the technology to remake what you have. But no matter what you do, almost everything else on your ship is gonna to have to be recycled during the three to six centuries you might be in space, if not longer. You're going to have to work backwards from recycling everything. So you, if your electronics has to be bulky and not particularly ergonomic so it can be recycled, that's the way your electronics will have to be. If you're gonna to have to wear clothes that are only made out of certain, certain products and not others, then that's the way it'll have to be. One of the products that we have to deal with today is plastics. And plastics is a problem I, I mentioned in the article to some extent. There are many kinds of plastics and you can't put all the various plastics together and recycle them into something useful now. If you, if you split them apart and they're all their own different groups, you can recycle it somewhat. But if you try to take a heterogeneous plastic mass and make, say, a plastic bottle out of it, 
it will break, it, it will not flex. You end up with these bricks that don't smell good. They're kind of a dirty color and they're hard to use for anything. So the point of the plastics is that you can make products out of plastic of all kinds, but once you've made it, your, your, your recycling part is hard. So if you put various kinds of uh, polymers into your clothes, unless you think ahead to how you're gonna recycle the clothes, uh, you may not be able to use some of the polymers that make the clothes feel as good as you want them to. These are decisions these people have to make. Yeah, so we may have to wear, wear scratchy wool stuff in space. <laughs> well, you could probably grow sheep, so maybe that'll be fine, right? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe you can grow cotton. Why? Why are particularly hydrocarbons difficult to recycle? Do you? I mean. Well, like tires are hard and plastics are hard and they don't do like, like steel. And well, of course, steel is like an element. It's very, yeah. Easy. Yeah. And these other things are ice are not, are uh, not exactly alloys, which also have some difficulties with which you can do it. But because they are the, the molecular structure is so complex. The, and we've already taken a large molecule and we've done things to it to make it what we want. So we've changed the molecule we started with into other forms. We've broken it down, we've cracked the cracked it, you know, cracking towers on refineries. So you don't actually start with the same product that you began with when you go to recycle. You were dealing with an entirely different product. It's already been messed with. I, I wouldn't be surprised if if in if we can say nano and quantum together maybe we can figure an ai we can put those three together maybe we can find a way to recycle these things but we got to yeah. do that That's well, not just maybe all those free. mounds of tires are just waiting for the nano <clears throat> to go online so and then the, that'll be the disassembly we that'll work maybe the aliens uh 50 years ago saw those enormous piles of tires and they really launched a mission here that they're going to come and take our tires from us that's right maybe they have an enormous amount of cars without tires that and because they didn't discover the wheel but they built cars anyway and they're just maybe they eat them <laughs> maybe they eat tires i hope they eat tires are not us a lot john ringo books <laughs> so what what was your point about um uh breeder reactors in in world in <clears throat> generation ships and such what well breeder reactors recycle their cores. <clears throat> in a fission reactor, you have a fissionable isotope, which is either uranium-235 or plutonium-239 or uranium-233 if you're building a thorium reactor. You, you usually use that. And you have around it a much greater amount of mass, 95% of the mass, is what's called a fertile material, like uranium-238 or thorium-232 if you have a thorium reactor. And during the life of that reactor, the uranium-235 will fission first with the plutonium-239 or the uranium-233. But in the process of fissioning, it releases neutrons. And the blanketing fertile material that's around it will accept some of those neutrons and will then transmute into other elements. Whereas uranium-238 will become plutonium-239, which is fissionable and then it fissions and produces more neutrons, which then will turn more uranium-238 into plutonium-239. In a thorium reactor, the uranium-233 or the uranium-235, whatever it uses as its 
as its uh, fissionable starter core will then transmute thorium-232 into uranium-233, which is fissionable, and then fission it. So what will have to happen in a breeder reactor is that periodically you will have to recycle the core to separate out to plutonium-239 and reform, it geom reform the geometry to put the plutonium-239 or the, or the, uran the uh, uranium-233 for a thorium reactor into the seeding area <clears throat> and then put more uranium-238 around it or uranium or uh, thorium-232 to repeat the process over and over and over again. But you, in a breeder reactor, you make more new fissionable material than you burn. So that's how you breed the next generation of core. How long can this process go on? Uh, a long time. If we did it on our planet Earth uh, using uranium-238 and, and thorium-232, we could power the planet with uh, fission energy for a long time. So in a, in a reactor, in a starship, you would send out a lot of uranium-238 or thorium-232, and you would repeat this process over and over and over again. Whereas if you had just a normal fission reactor <clears throat> that wasn't designed for breeding, you would eventually run out because you're not making as much <clears throat> new fissional material as you're, as you're consuming in each generation of the core. So in a starship that's gonna go hundreds and hundreds of years into space and you need a power source, you're almost certainly gonna end up using a breeder reactor. <clears throat> and since I'm a nuclear engineer and I want redundancy, I want at least four of them. <laughs> in, in our ship, yeah. Yeah. You see my ribbon, right? Show it. Where is it? My it's ribbon. I'm never far from it. Redundancy is good. That's great. You got to say it twice to be redundant. <laughs> oh, I see. It's it's not two ribbons. It's one ribbon. Correct. Yeah. One ribbon. Very clever. Larry Niven was so taken by it. I have a picture of him wearing it the next day after I gave it to him. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, and you often will, um, it, back when we used to have science fiction conventions, um, you often will do uh, these articles as sort of a presentation slideshow, um, Ted Talkie-esque sort of thing. And they're With always videos. fascinating to attend. With videos. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. And the stuff that you footnote in the article and that people can link to, um, you'll show, um, those are, if, if anybody ever gets a chance, those are always great to go see Jim, uh, do those as well. So what else about the article that we cover everything? Um, it's in, there's so much more material in there to, and it definitely is something that people will, would love to read and will love to read. It's also available, um, it, um, as an, portion of an ebook download at uh, nonfiction. It came out in 2021. So it'll be in the nonfiction 2021 uh, free ebook download at Bain eBooks as well. I'd say there's one more thing that I didn't, we did not cover here in this talk that's in the article that's probably worth discovering, uh, worth mentioning. And that is how many billion of us are on this planet right now? Oh, yeah, you're talking about human recycling. Yes, go ahead. On a world ship, you're going to have to do that as well. You're going to have, we're going to have to recycle our cells. 
So how do you recycle human beings? And of course, down through the ages, we had you know, cremation burials were what they was commonly used in the Iron Age and before. And during the, most of the Christian age, they buried people. Uh, and, and so what do you do with, with humans? If we just had burial grounds, uh, we'll eventually have a planet full of uh, cemeteries. France had to deal with this uh, a century or more ago. They are, most of their Paris was being covered by cemeteries. So they ended up uh, taking all the remains out of the cemeteries and placing them underground into basically catacombs and to free up the space for, for uh, urbanization, I guess. So in a starship, you're gonna have to recycle ourselves, but recycling causes problems. And I, I note one of them as an example that in Britain, the crematoriums, which they were using, they had to shut them all down for a while because they found that uh, they were emitting toxic levels of mercury in the air. And that was because the people had dental fillings. And uh, so they had to figure out a way around that. So recycling. It's not necessarily, counts. cremation is not necessarily any better an answer than anything else then. And there are people who are studying the problem and are, are they've offered ways that they can, you can be more uh, friendly recycling of yourselves. I provide some links to that in the article as well. Yeah. Well, I just figured out a way to achieve my own immortality. <laughs> I want to be made into a tire. So I <laughs> will be very difficult to get rid of. <laughs> and if your entire family did it, you wouldn't have a family tree of a family pile. That's right. Yeah. Somewhere out in Colorado, you can dig through and find <laughs> So, um, and there, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a great James Tiptree story, junior story about, um, dust being, uh, kicked up by aliens. That is, that sort of reanimates, uh, memories. It's called her and her, and her smoke rose up forever. Um, which is, uh, intimates that perhaps we're impressed upon our, uh, on the atoms that constitute us. And that even if you cremate us, we're still, you know, Every once in a while, when we get kicked around by alien uh, feet, uh, we'll briefly have a moment of consciousness and have a like a memory. That's actually one of another version of that is uh, in one of the ancient religions, Elysium Fields, where the was it I forgot which whether it was Romans or Greeks, where they would go out and and drop some blood or wine or something on a surface, and for a time that the their forefather or their forebear would be there with them or the hallowed hero who they were honoring would be there with them. One of their religions, I believe. I'm putting my money on making, on being a tire. So <laughs> maybe a whole religion could arise around. Me. All right. Well, thank you, Jim. Anything else we, uh, we want to talk um, about with the article? What are you working well, on now? Uh, well, I haven't pitched it to you yet, obviously. No. But I'm working on one about uh, metals, uh, metallurgy, and why we began metals, and why we're trying to get away from metals, and what do we do instead of metals when we didn't have metals, and what, what, we, what might we do if we were trying to do the same purpose of metals if we don't want to use metals to do it. So there's, there's lots of twists and turns in history about that, and perhaps in the future as well. 
Very cool. Looking forward to that. Well, out now at Bain.com and in the free ebook download, Nonfiction 2021 at Bain eBooks is Recycling from Stars to Starships by Jim Bell. Jim, thank you so much for being with us again. On it's a pleasure. If we want to get to the stars, we've got to recycle damn well. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has won the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League. And hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Cargo container HNL 1007 9 464H. Freight hub number 19. Bay 8 Delta. Beowulf Beta. Beowulf System. It was very quiet in Bay 8D. Like all modern cargo handling facilities, freight hub number 19 was heavily automated, so there was no one to pay attention to cargo container HNL 1007-9-464H. Even if there had been, no one would have noticed anything. The crated shuttle fusion plant only sat there, giving no sign at all of the clock ticking down inside it. Under the original operational planning, Beowulf Beta would have died at the same instant as Beowulf Gamma, had a moment coordinated with the Solarian attack. The planners had been unable to predict exactly when that moment would come, which was why they'd been forced to rely on their agent in place. But they'd also realized from the beginning that that coordination might prove unobtainable when the time actually came. And so they'd programmed two separate attack sequences. If they lost the coordination with the missile strike and the detonation command was transmitted anyway, there was no point pretending the subsequent explosions were the direct result of the Solarian attack, and in that case, they had a rather different message to deliver. Jacques Benton Ramirez Ichu and Hamish Alexander Harrington hadn't figured it out, yet. If they'd been given enough time, they might have. Possibly not, though. Neither of them had ever met Albrecht Detweiler or his sons. More importantly, they didn't understand what Albrecht Detweiler had done or why. They'd assumed the nuclear detonations covering the end of Operation Houdini had been planned from the beginning, and so they had. What they didn't know was the way 10th Fleet's arrival had rushed Houdini's final phase, or how bitterly Benjamin Detweiler and his brothers blamed everyone but their father for their parents' deaths. And because they didn't know those things, they didn't understand how hatred and grief and loss and guilt had shaped the brothers' response. They were looking for the calculation the strategic plan behind Beowulf Gamma's destruction because they didn't realize how intensely personal it was. That was why their brains hadn't yet caught up with the possibility 
that more than one nuclear weapon might have been smuggled aboard more than one orbital habitat. Five minutes precisely after Beowulf Gamma's death, they discovered that one had. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer, Ruth Judkowitz. And Coffee Grounds, Tangerine Rinds, and a cheese-spattered pizza box for his Mr. Fusion time machine. Plus thanks and praise for Jim Bell, author of Bain.com essay, Recycling, from Stars to Starships. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 